It's good to see you all. Uh, it's good to see that, that none of you who normally go to the evening services are here this morning for football reasons. Uh, <laughs> glad you guys can be here. <laughs> glad you guys can be here. At least you're here, right? Because I know what this, this evening is going to look like. It's going to just be a bunch of hipsters. All of our sports fans are going to be... <laughs> and me, right? In fact, we've been trying to video it so the video can come in tonight and then I could be somewhere else with our people. With the people, right? Hey, um, you guys are blessed even more so than the 9 a.m. We had some issues with our microphone at the 9 a.m. Therefore, I had to preach last message uh, with no mic. And so I just yelled at everybody. And so the front row got spit. And then the, <laughs> the back row, they, they, they made it. But it was a lot of fun. Although I was looking forward to it this hour, that if we didn't have the mic, I was going to walk up and down the, the aisle, right? And so whenever I got on sin moments, I'm like, like you. You know what I'm talking about. And you know, right? So... That didn't happen. So, hey, we're going to continue in our series on Romans. We've taken uh, probably about eight weeks off with our Advent, as well as starting in, um, in the, this year with some of the sermons we taught and Anniversary Sunday last week. But we are back in Romans, and we're starting in Romans chapter 8. And as you heard from the scripture reading, we have one verse today. So if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. If you do not have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised high, and then someone will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep the copy that we are handing out to you as a gift from us to you. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 is where we'll begin today, although the bulk of our time we'll be looking at chapters 1 through 7 um, and kind of recapping. Uh, it's, a, it's a good time for us to be back in this series. Let me just uh, read chapter 8, verse 1 to you. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what we normally do is whenever you see a therefore, we tell you you have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Um, what that means is the author is beginning to say something that's connecting to something that, that, that uh, preceded his next statement. And, and by the way of just giving you a kind of an overview of Romans chapter 8, personally myself, this is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Um, and here's why. Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, begins to talk more about the Holy Spirit than he does in this one chapter than he does in any of his letters. In fact, even if you looked at Romans and you broke it down chapter 1 through chapter 7, there's only a handful of time where he mentions the word spirit. And then, and then you look at chapters 9 all the way to the conclusion in chapter 16, there's only another handful. Full. There's about 20-something references of the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. Um, chapters 1 through 7 is beginning to unpack the gospel um, our issue of sin and what God is now doing in Christ Jesus. And then chapter 8 begins to let us know how we live this spirit-filled life. And so to this morning's message has to go with next week's message. So if you're here for the first time and you're going, this is my first time here, if you're going to check out Redemption, you have to come next week as well. We normally don't do this, but you have to come next week uh, in order to get that. Um, just to kind of walk through Romans chapter 8, Paul first starts with there's no condemnation. Um, he goes on to talking about this life in the Spirit and how we're equipped and filled by the Spirit. Paul continues to talk about those moments when we begin to forget that we are sons and that we are daughters in Christ Jesus, that the Spirit himself begins to testify and cry out for us, Abba, Father. Um, in, in verse 18, it begins to talk about suffering and how the suffering in this life is nothing compared to the glory in which we will have in seeing the face of Christ. He talks about how creation in itself is groaning for the day in which God would redeem this world. 
And then the part for me in the first few weeks of being a Christian that began to wreck me was Romans chapter, 28, uh, chapter 8, verses 28, 29 and 30. I'm going to read this to you. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, many Christians trip up over the predestination, and, and we'll, we'll get tripped up when we get there in a few weeks. The part that really got me was that part glorified. I mean, because you look at that word glorified, is that glorified is past tense. And so Paul is saying that we are already as good, redeemed bodies, being able to live in all of eternity with Christ Jesus. And I remember reading that thinking, how does he know that? Like, I just became a Christian. What if I don't continue to walk in God's ways? What happens when I stumble and when I fall? Like, what happens? But you know what? Paul knew something about the gospel that I didn't know. And he began to talk about the sustaining love and the sustaining grace of God in our life. And if there was any questions of if a Christian um, begins to lose his or her salvation um, in God, he concludes chapter 8 with this, um, starting in verse 7. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's saying, no, that's how powerful this gospel is. And we're going to be able to spend the next several weeks talking about how the Spirit empowers us, to empowers us to live this life and how it affirms us and reminds us of who we are in Christ Jesus. But for today, we'll look at this one verse. And as we look at this one verse, um, we're going to travel through and recap kind of where we've been in Romans. And there's three places, I believe, that we'll stop um, to understand Romans 8, verse 1. The first place is that of a garden and the garden. We'll talk about how sin broke, uh, broke into this world through Adam and Eve and how sin brings shame and what the gospel means to that. The second place is that of a courtroom. When we get into Romans chapter 3, 4, 5, it begins to talk about this word justification. Um, and it's usually spoken in the, in the language of forensic means, meaning that there is a courtroom setting, that we are guilty of sin and what the gospel speaks to that. And then lastly is a living room that we are part of a new family, and that we have a new life, born of the Holy Spirit, applying the life of Christ to us. And so that is the garden, which was shame, the courtroom, which is guilt, and then the living room, which is new life. And so if you're with me again, let's read again Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In 1963, uh, some of you know this, there was a man by the name of Martin Luther King Jr., which if you don't know him, you should be thanking God that he existed. Most of you don't have work tomorrow because of that. <laughs> and neither do we, <laughs> thankfully. Is that 1963, um, in Washington, D.C., at the Lincoln Memorial, he gave one of our, our generation, um, he gave one of the best speeches ever in history. And in this speech, he said these words. He said, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And I can't say it like him. He said it way better. Something like, free at last, free at last, right? 
Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last, right? We are free at last. Now, what he was talking about was a day in which we would be able to see in our country whites and blacks, Jews and Gentiles, Protestant and Catholics, as he said, would be able to come together. These are people who created in the image of God that we would be able to love together, live together, work together, do life together. But because he was a man who was, had deep convictions of the gospel, we knew that there's a spiritual reality to that, to that statement as well. And the spiritual reality to that statement is that we could be free in Christ Jesus. And so when the Apostle Paul says, therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's saying it is a promise, it is a fact, it is a truth that every single man, woman, and child who trusts in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. You are free from the guilt of sin. You've been covered from the shame of sin. That you've been invited into a new family to have the new life of the Holy Spirit. But to be able to understand that, we, we have to understand where we've traveled from and where the gospel has taken us, this journey of grace in which God has many of us on and some of you who may begin for the first time to trust in the work of Christ on your behalf. And the first thing that we see why Paul can say that there's no condemnation is we start first in the garden. So if you're in Romans chapter 8, I want you to turn all the way to Romans chapter 1. We get the very first uh, week in which we started Romans. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. First thing Paul says is the reason why I'm writing this letter is I'm an apostle. That means the word, it means sent. I am sent by God to tell you this good news. This good news that was promised by the prophets. These are the men who spoke on behalf of God in the Old Testament. He says the good news concerning his son, Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is these prophets spoke about good news. Now, if we're going to understand that there's good news, first we have to know and acknowledge that there's first bad news. Um, there's bad news that precedes the good news of the gospel. And, and the bad news was this, is that in the very beginning of our world, the true story of the world, the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we see God create a perfect world, the way it ought to be. And at the apex of his creation, he creates man, and he creates woman, and it's Adam, and it's Eve. And God looks at them. He loves them. He walks in the cool of the day with them, that they were unashamed and exposed before God and before each other, before each other, the way that it ought to be. And God told them, don't eat of this tree. When you eat of this tree, death will reign. That's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve, that the serpent himself, who was the devil, began to trick and deceive the woman. And then what happened in that moment in eating the fruit, it wasn't that they just ate the fruit. And at the very heart of sin, your sin and my sin and sin in this world, is that of self-autonomy. And that means we want to be a law into ourselves. We want to say what is right for this world. We want to say the way things ought to be, what is right for ourselves, not realizing we belong to God and our life is best lived under his reign and care. But Adam and Eve said, no, thank you. And with that, death reigned throughout humanity, and not just humanity, but decay and disease and so forth throughout his creation. Um, Paul talks about this in Romans 5, that we now are represented in Adam. 
He says, we are all in Adam. Um, and we just can't blame Adam. We said that, no, the Bible teaches us that we are all sinners by nature and by choice, right? We said by nature and by choice that we were all naughty by nature, not because I hate you, right? I knew it. Nine o'clock was like, we're not sure. <laughs> it's like, whatever. <laughs> we are naughty by nature. It was just saying that's what we saw because of our father Adam and our mother Eve and because of our own decisions, and that's where we are. And if you skip over here to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we begin to talk about the consequences of this sin, the one sin of Adam and ours as well, the effects that it has on us as humanity. It says, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He goes on to say, even in creation, it's showing itself. Even in the things that are made, it's showing that someone had to design this. There is a creator and he says, but we naturally would begin to suppress that truth. That we naturally would be able to push it down. No thank you to God. Let me be me. Look after number one. I'll figure this out on my own. And he goes on to say a few other things. In verse 21 it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What Paul is saying is what happens now is there's idolatry. We were created to love. We were created to love. We were created to worship, to give ourselves to something. And when God is not central in that, at best what he becomes is just purely religion, which is no good news. And at worst, we begin to just worship other things void of even religion in itself. And, and, and what I said in, in the first few weeks of Romans is like the worst thing that a holy God could do to us is let us be and continue to be who we would normally be apart from his gracious and sovereign intervention. And so when it says that the wrath of God is being revealed, we said the worst thing that God can do for us now is to let you be who you would be apart from his intervention. Let me be apart who I would be. Because naturally what that means is that we would continue to live this lifestyle. And Romans 1 says what this lifestyle looks like. Romans 2 shows us that it's not just the irreligious people that have a certain amount of sins that live as if there's no God, but even the religious people who live as if there's God but don't have to understand the gospel. And you say, how could that be? I think some of the most indicted people are people like you and I who come to church, who know the rules of the scripture, and yet don't understand the principle and the spirit of it. That many of us are doing all the right things, but we're not trusting in the right one. And he says, you can be both religious and irreligious and miss it. And so the worst thing God can do is just kind of go, go ahead, do what you want to do apart from me. And in verse 24, it says, therefore God gave them up. Paul repeats that again in verse 26. He says, for this reason, God gave them up. And so this, this position that we have in the garden is that we've all turned our backs on God. We've all done things in our past that communicate, God, no thank you. And when we do that, what happens is we continue to make a pattern out of that. There are some things that we've done that many of us go, it's even brought us shame because of our failure. There's not a man, there's not a woman in this room that hasn't done something that they are just, not just ashamed of, but has brought them shame. Meaning they carry it with them. This is something I don't want to bring up. It's something that's happened in my past. It's deep in my closet. I don't want anybody to walk in there and see this because this is, it's almost a part of me. Think about this. Have you ever thought of what it would have been like for Adam and Eve after they sinned? Like after God already said, okay, this is what's going to happen. Every bad thing in this world that happens now, 
every negative test that comes back from the doctor, every child that loses a life early, every disease, everything, is because you guys decided to disobey me. You ever think about the weight of that? And they live for like hundreds and hundreds of years. So, so when, when, when um, Eve had a Cain and Abel, and then Cain kills Abel, you think she thought, dang it, that would have never happened if we wouldn't have, that would have never happened, just living with that shame. And, and, and I want to be able to separate shame from guilt. And I'm drawn from the gleanings here uh, from Brene Brown, who is a leading researcher in shame. And what she says is, shame and guilt, they're similar, but there's a difference. Um, guilt is, I've done wrong. Shame is, I am wrong. Guilt is, I've made a mistake. Shame is, I am the mistake. And there are some of you in this room, because of certain things that you've done, you've internalized and given yourself an identity on yourself because of something that you've done wrong. And maybe you've even been to church before, and maybe that someone has affirmed that. You are this, you are that, you are this, what are you doing? And you said, that is me. And some of us like that because we think that drives us to God. It doesn't. Because even in the midst of our own sin, God gives us Christ. He never says that your identity isn't what you've done in the past. Your identity is who Christ is and what God has done. You say, how, how, how do you think Adam and Eve did this? Well, what Paul says in chapter 1 and the first five verses is he begins to continue what the prophet said. Do, do you realize that in the very beginning of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, after their sin, that we begin to have a glimpse of the first gospel? The, the reason why I think that Adam and Eve were able to live in the midst of this broken world is they realized even though they had sinned, even though they had failed, that they weren't going to internalize that shame because they begin to look forward to God and what he would do. I think they believed him. You say, what do you mean? No, no need for you to, to turn there. It'll be on the screen here. But Genesis chapter 3 is the very, very first glimpse that we have of good news. In Genesis chapter 3, God begins to give curse, curses to the woman. Um, he begins to give curses to the man. And then he talks to the serpent, to Satan. Here's what he says in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. Here's the picture that's happening there. He's saying there's going to be a day when the woman will have a seed, and it's not Eve. However, when you chase throughout the, trace throughout the Old Testament this particular seed, all the way to Abraham, all the way to Moses, all the way to David, ultimately all the way to the Messiah himself and Jesus. And on the cross, what Satan thought he was doing was he was bruising his heel. He thought it was done, but that's exactly what God had always promised and that Jesus himself on the cross and the resurrection was crushing the head of Satan and one day will fully obliterate and get rid of evil all in itself. It was the beginning of the good news. And the rest of the Bible is this unfolding story about God and how he delights to get rid of evil. Though it was man's responsibility and though it was man's fault, God enters in in grace, right? You ever see, you ever read the story? When Adam and Eve sin against God, they are ashamed and they get fig leaves and they hide themselves. Do they run to God? No. Who is it that goes looking for them? That's God. And he doesn't come looking for their condemnation. He comes looking for them because he's a good dad and because he's a great father. But the truth be told, many of us, we are just like Adam and Eve. We sin and we hide from God and we hide from his people. We hide from the church. We hide from everything. And we hide, we hide behind metaphorical spiritual fig leaves. Some of you, it's your career. It's what you've been able to achieve. Some of you, it's your goodness. Some of you, it's your good looks few, right? 
Some, some of you, it's whatever education standard you, you've been able to live up to. Many of us, it's our children. It's the way we're raising our kids. If they turn out well, then that will be great. Some of you, it's the legacy. You're, 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 um, you're 50 plus and you're going, my legacy, what legacy will I leave? Because if I can only leave a legacy, that's it. And you're hiding. Some of you are hiding religiously. You know the scriptures and you know what to do and you're just a faithful church going man or a woman. But do you really understand who you are in Christ? Or is it just another way to avoid God? If I do these things, then God won't do bad things to me. Guys, that is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Um, Adam and Eve were able to live without the shame because they knew what God would do. Hear me. We are able to live without the shame even though we've sinned personally. And we've hurt and we have baggages and we have past. But the way that we're able to live without carrying the shame and internalizing that's who we are is because what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not for those who did better, not for those who got their act together, but for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning the only way that we can be covered is in Christ Jesus. If you're looking to hide, hide in him. Take everything of who you are, every doubt that you've had, everything that anybody's ever said of you that you are not enough, and hide in Jesus. It's the hymn that we sing, rock of ages, clep for me. Let me hide myself in thee. It is the body of Christ being broken for us that we who were born on either side of the train track, no matter what our past is, that we can take all of who we are, not fix ourselves up, all of who we are, and hide in the person and work of Christ Jesus. The only way that we can live out of the garden and understand that there's freedom and understand that we don't have to internalize our own sin is realizing what Christ has done on our behalf. Amen? The only way that we, as people who are flawed, people who have wronged, people who have failed, people and people who have failed us, is that we are hidden in Christ Jesus. Paul says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's just the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the first place we see is the garden. Now, some of us go, that makes sense. I get that. And we've talked about this before through Romans. Okay, I get that my past has been dealt with. But Ricardo, what about when my past is my present? What about the things that I did and I hated are the things I do now? It was kind of the Roman 7s thing when we ended. The things that, I, that God tells me to do, I don't do those things. And the God, when God says don't do that, I find myself doing that. What a wretched man that I am. Or, or, or more personally, um, things that you said, those are in my past, they're no more. I've had months of freedom. I've had years of freedom and victory. And then all of a sudden you, you, you're failing in those things. Sometimes it's easy for us to understand God forgiving us before the cross, almost because we think he forgave us because we were just ignorant, kind of like, ah, you ignorant kids, I'll forgive you. But now that you're a Christian, what are you doing? What's your problem? I can't believe you did that. And we, we, we have this view of God, and therefore, we, we, we act out of that view. That I better get myself together. And so the question is, what do I do with ongoing sin? What do I do with the guilt of ongoing sin? What do I do when I struggle with sin? And, and many, of you, many of you, all of you guys have been guilty of something in your life. You've done something wrong. 
And the picture here is a courtroom. If you walk into a courtroom and you're guilty, and I know none of you guys being the good people that you are, you've never been in a courtroom for something you've done wrong. No speeding tickets, nothing. Not you guys, right? So me, I've been in the courtroom only for speeding tickets, just to be clear, is, remember, I don't know if they still have this, but they had the flashing lights on all the highways around here. Remember that? That was the dumbest thing ever, right? And they tried to say they caught me speeding. They caught me speeding. And, and, and I knew I was guilty, right? I knew I was wrong. And then you can't get away from it. As soon as that flash went out, I'm like, oh, no, man, I hope they, you know, somehow didn't get my license and they don't send it to my house and, and you know, maybe my wife won't find out about it. And sure enough, it comes in the mail. And you can't lie about those things, right? Because it's you. It's like, <laughs> you're, you're driving. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, that's not me. <laughs> that's you, right? <laughs> That's you. And then when you have those tickets, what happens is you have two options. If you can either pay a fine, but it's going to go on your record, which is going to jack up your insurance, or if you haven't had tickets in the past, or at least in the past two years, is that you can take a class. So you'll pay a fee, but you'll take this class, and you'll take this very, 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 very boring class for several hours, or go online and do it, and then you're kind of free to go. That's kind of how our judicial system works here. And sadly, sadly, many Christians treat God that way and treat the gospel that way. We believe that we stand before God in the courtroom who is the just judge, and we understood we are guilty, we've done wrong, we've read your word, we understand your character, and what we've done is wrong, and so um, either we can pay the penalty for it, which we don't want that because that sentence is death, and that's for eternal life, and we don't want that because that would be hell, and so we, what class do we need to take? And the way that we do this is when you find yourself in sin, um, no matter what the sin is, whether it's sexual, whether it's something that is in your mind, whatever it may be, and what do you do? As soon as you do, you go, you know what? I need to fix this. And you go to God's word. I need to be reading more, dang it. And if I read more, then I'll stop doing that. You know, I need to be praying more. That's what I need to do. If, when I'm praying more, I notice that I don't, I don't do these things, so I'm going to pray more. Or, you know what, I, I've, I've not been going to church service, so I need to go to church service. I've not been going to community groups, so I'm, whatever it may be, all of these beautiful things that God calls us to do, we think those things are going to fix the problem of sin and guilt. Hear me. Reading your Bible, praying, attending church services, all of those things do not fix the problem of sin and guilt. It doesn't. Jesus is the only one who can heal and restore we don't run to our Bible to fix our problems. But many of us are doing that. That, that we want to say, God, I'll take this class and then just don't let it get on my record. I'll take care of it myself, but just don't let it get on my record. But what Paul gives us here in this picture of this courtroom and the gospel is far different than us trusting in our ability to do religious things to fix the problem that we have of guilt, of, of sin and continued sin. If you're in Romans 1, turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. Some beautiful words here. And so when you find yourself in ongoing sin, when you find yourself struggling with the things that were in your past that are now in your present, here's what Paul says in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me pause there for a second. First, you need to understand that no matter what your sin is, and no matter how many times you've done it, no matter how dark or how gross you think it is, that when you come into the particular courtroom before the presence of God, you're not alone. And sometimes that's comforting. If you ever sat down with somebody and you wanted to confess something or something in your life that you're, you're struggling with and you talk to them, some of the most comforting words they hear first and foremost is, me too. What Paul is saying is, all have sinned. 
all have sinned. By meaning every single person in this world have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Not just the standards you've set for yourself, the standard that God has set for you. And all of us have fallen short. Maybe some of us have gotten closer, but it's meaningless. It, God doesn't grade on a, tur- a curve. It's perfection, and none of us have reached it. He says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You say, well, you don't understand my sin. I don't, but he does. And he says all have sinned. Paul elsewhere writes in Corinthians that there's no sin that's uncommon to man. So you, you name it, whatever it may be, there's somebody in this room. And if not in this room, there's definitely someone within God's church that's struggling with going through the same thing. He says all have sinned, but this next part is beautiful. And fall short of the glory of God and are justified, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here's what Paul is saying. Everybody in that courtroom, it's packed. It's like, take a, take a number. Everybody's in there. But they're in there ultimately because something's going to go on their record. Um, God, the judge, is not prescribing a class. He's not saying, here's some things you can do, and if you fulfill this, come back, present it to the court, and we'll take it off your record. He goes, there's nothing you could do. There's no class. Either you're going to pay this or something else is going to happen. And what God does is he gives us a gift. It says grace. It means unmerited favor. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't get it because you're raised in a certain family. You don't get it because you live in America or whatever. You don't get it because of that. You get it because of his love. And he says you get this gift of Christ. You get justification. That's a, that's a forensic term usually that means that you were justified. That's a one-time act of which you were now made right. You were acquitted of your sins. How was this happening? It says because he puts forth his own son, Jesus, to be the propitiation of our sins. And we go, what the heck is propitiation? <laughs> propitiation means to satisfy. What does Jesus put forth to satisfy? Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God. For me and for you and for our, my sin and your sin and every single person who would believe, God says, as the just judge, there's another way, and it's not a class. And the way it's going to happen is if you trust in him on your behalf and Jesus walks into the room and says, I will represent you. Adam falsely represented you, and therefore you were left in the situation you were in. Romans 5 lets us know that now we are in Christ Jesus. Jesus fully represents us, and now he goes and he pays the penalty, meaning every single ounce of wrath that God had towards you was poured out on his son because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit so loves you. And says, now the record's clean. There's there's no record that you didn't pay for this. You didn't do anything for this. Jesus did it because he loves you. It's satisfied. God is never looking at his children with anger. That means you are no more loved on your worst day than you are on your best day. Meaning whatever that sin is, and you all have them, we all have them, when it happens to you, when it happens tonight, when it happens tomorrow night, you don't just run to God's word just for the sake of his word. You run to him because his word reveals who he is, and you say, you are my redeemer, and I know even in the midst of this moment, I can look up to you because I am still loved by you. It's not because of performance, good or bad. I didn't do anything good to earn it, and therefore I can't do anything bad to lose it. I am simply loved as Christ is loved by faith in what he's done on my behalf. My record is clean. Let's go a little further here. Your record's just not clean. It's more than that. It's, it, it's far more beautiful than that. Because what happens is in Christianity, what we think is we go, okay, Jesus has forgiven me, and so now he's hit the reset button, and so now I'm going to try it again. No, no, no. He doesn't hit the reset button. And I know sometimes people use that, use that, um, that picture like, you know, Christianity is a, is a religion of second chances. No, 
Because if you got another chance, you'll screw it over again. And if you got another chance, you'll do it again. Our issue was that we, we, we didn't have enough chances. Our issue was we, had, we, we needed a redeemer. And Jesus doesn't just come in and hit the reset button. He comes and gives us his life. And so he takes the penalty of our sin, and he takes, he takes the record of our sin, and then therefore receives the penalty. But God still demands this righteousness. And what Jesus gives us is his righteousness. And so when God sees your life, and he sees your record, and he opens up the record of you put your name in there, um, he sees your name on it, but he doesn't necessarily see everything that you've done. He treats you, responds to you, and hear me, loves you as if Christ. Everything that Christ every time Christ fed the poor, he goes, that was you. Every, every, everything that Christ did on this earth, it was for you. Every time he obeyed, it was you. His sinless life, his impeccable life, he says, that's you. I love you the same as that. When Christ goes to the cross and he pays the penalty, he goes, okay, I've accepted you on behalf of him. That you are now a part of this family. And so to boil it down, what it means is God is gracious. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to come to church to prove yourself. You don't read your Bible to prove yourself. You are already accepted and fully loved infinitely in the work of Christ Jesus. Amen. Here, here, here's, let's, let's take it even further how we do this. And I, I want to hammer on this because I know we struggle with this. Is when we naturally think, okay, now we're free. Um, God has forgiven me. Um, I hope I don't fail in that area anymore. And maybe you make promises. You wrote in your journal, Lord, I'm going to do this every day. I was looking at my journal from last year, and it was from um, January something, 2013. And it says, okay, Lord. This is the year. I'm going to journal every day. The next page, May 17th. <laughs> Something happened. We, we have, we have, these, we have these, these promises, right? Well, here, here's, here's what I'm communicating here is we come to God initially because we need help. But you ever get to the point that God is like, I'm fed up, dude. You keep struggling with that same sin, dude. I'm done. When I was, uh, my last couple years in high school, my first year in college, I actually liked math. I wasn't that great at math, but I liked it. But the problems that were hardest to me were all the word problems. Because you know, like in college algebra, you, you read a word problem. What it's really trying to do is to see how you can fit the formula in there. And to me, if you just gave me the formula, I could do that. But the words all got wor- weird to me, right? Like, I love math until they start putting letters in math. It didn't make any sense to me, right? It's like I thought it was numbers. And now they put these letters in it. Well, my teacher said, if you come to me, I can help you. So I'd go to her office hours, and she'd help me. And then I'd get pretty good at it, and then I'd kind of forget it. And then I'd go to her office hours, and she'd help me. And after a while, I stopped going, even though I kept forgetting how to do it. Um, and the reason why I stopped going, because I was embarrassed. Like, man, she's going to think, like, what an idiot. Like, he can't figure this out. Like, he can't do this on his own. And I think that's how we, we are with our sin. Like, we'll go to God, or we'll go to somebody else. We'll confess it, and it, we'll, we'll experience the grace of God in it to be free and to live in his forgiveness and grace. And then we'll go again and maybe we'll experience it. But then we're like, no, I don't know if I want to tell her again. I don't know if I want to tell him again. I don't know if I can go to God like this again. So now I'll try to take care of myself. And what happens to you is the same thing happens to me. You begin to fail in that area all because you won't raise your hand and say, I need help. Like, that's how you became a Christian. It's by saying, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. And the way that you grow as a Christian is by raising your hand again and saying, Lord, again and again, every day, every hour, I need help. I can't do this on my own. And God begins to apply the work of Christ in your life. I mean, just think about this for a second. If you fully believed that you were fully accepted, meaning nothing you have to do, 
to earn it, nothing you do to lose it, that you are fully approved by God, what would be different about your life? Like, how would you treat people? How would you work? Um, how would you set goals? I know some of us, we are good goal setters, and we attribute failure, failure to ourselves when we don't achieve whatever goals we've set for ourselves. That we don't know how to deal with that. How would you deal with that if you knew you were fully accepted and approved by God? How would you deal with whatever happens late tonight? How would you deal with the next morning? How would you deal with those things? And the reason I want you to think about that, because that is what the gospel is inviting you to live like. The truth of the scripture is you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You don't have to have shame that the garden brings. The truth of the gospel, as we see in scripture, is that you don't have to stand before the just judge and figure out, how am I going to pay this? He says, Jesus paid it all. What if I sin again? Jesus paid it all. What if I fell again? Jesus paid it all. And we just have to understand, there's a difference between struggling with sin and tapping out. Christians struggle with sin. That means they fight back and the means and the strength of the Lord. Whenever someone's saying, I'm tapped out, I'm done, you're not trusting in the gospel. That's not the same. It's not the same. So in the gospel, failure is not fatal. The, The problem is not sin. The problem is unrepentant sin. When you understand that you were loved and you were accepted, you should be able to get up immediately, not wait for time, not figure out how I can do religious things and then present myself to God. That's not believing in his son Christ. It's believing in his son Christ. Jesus is immediately say, Lord, I need your help now. Help me to trust and live in your love. Amen? God takes us from the garden to the courtroom, and then lastly, the living room. And I use the living room for this is because, and uh, oftentimes when we talk about justification in church circles or even biblically, it's only taught in the judicial sense. And it's always been weird to me. We talk about in forensic sense of what Christ does, but we never deal, we, we love Christ and we love what he's done, but we never deal with what happens with the judge. And so we only look at God as the just judge, which is deeply biblical. But do you understand that like he is not only the just judge, but he's our father now because of what Christ did? I mean, just think about that. You wouldn't walk out of the courtroom and be like, I'm free. Let me wait here for the judge to come out so I can thank him. No. You get in your car and go, he might change his mind. Let me get out of here. (laughs) But when he's a father, you go home. And you go home to him, and he's a good dad. He's a great dad. He's the best dad. No matter how good of a father you have or how bad of a father you have, he's the best dad. One of the things we're doing now in our family is that our oldest son is, is playing like coach pitch baseball, which for me is great because I can't enter in because I've, I've never played baseball and I'm really terrible, actually. But what happens is it's like a five, six lead. And so all these kids are five, six-year-old kids. And, and you guys have been around Little League Baseball. You know how, how ugly it can get with parents, right? And there's one particular guy who's around the baseball scene and he, the way he talks to the kids just absolutely disturbs me because he doesn't talk to his kids like that. He talks to every kid like that. So his kid doesn't hit the ball. You know you can hit better than that. I'm like, he's five. <laughs> he's five, you know. And then he says it to my son. Come on, Noah, you're better than that. And I'm like, oh, I got to go, honey. I got to go. <laughs> like, you know, and, like, and I told Holly, I'm like, I, I got to confront him. And she says, no, because I know if that happens, uh, y- it could be a fight. And I said, okay, you're wise. You're right. I would use these hands for praying. Because <laughs> here's what I can think about. If you're a dad and you're saying that, you know you could do better than that. You know, here's, here's what implicitly the kid learns. When I do really good, my dad's going to love me. But when I don't, I'm not sure. That's not the gospel. 
When Paul says, there is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that you are, again, just as loved on your best day as you are on your worst day. A better picture of that is I was listening to a man talk about what he did with his kid. They were bases loaded, and his son was up to bat, and he was the coach. And if they won the game, then they were going to go to the next round. If they lost the game, they were done, season over. And he knew the pressure that his son had, and so he called timeout and went to his son and whispered in his ear and said, hey, if you strike out right now, we're going to go get ice cream after this. So his son got up the bat, he struck out, and they went and got ice cream. And he said, that was a win for me. I wanted my son to know I'm going to love you regardless. When God takes us out of shame and closes us in the righteousness of Christ, when he takes us our guilt of which we've done that we should be convicted of and he gives us Christ Jesus as a propitiation, now our life, if we saw in chapter 5 and chapter 6, is that we are now hidden in Christ and whatever is true of Christ is now true of us and that we now have this new life in Christ to be lived out by the Spirit. And Paul began to give us a glimpse of what this life would look like in Romans chapter 7. And so if you turn over just a page or two to Romans chapter 7, verse 6. He's saying there's a new era of salvation now. There's a new era of walking with God that the Old Testament believers did not have, and that is the permanent, ongoing, consistent, powerful, loving, gracious work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, he says, but now we are released from the law having died to that which led us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. The new way of the Spirit reminds us we're children. We learn about that in Romans 8. The new way of the Spirit helps us even in our suffering. The new way of the Spirit is the work of the Holy Spirit. If, if, if we said honestly, which person of the Trinity do we know least, we would say the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is the one who reminds us of who living room we're living in. It reminds us of who our father is and who our eldest brother is and how we got into this family adopted through the blood and work of Christ Jesus. The reason why Paul can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ is because the Spirit is the one who is reminding us that. And so if you want to understand the work of salvation when it comes to God, the Father appoints it. The Son, through his life, death, and resurrection, accomplished the work of salvation. And the Holy Spirit applies all of it. The love of the Father, it says he lavishes love upon us through the Spirit. Romans Romans 5 says that. The work of the Son, meaning the strength of Christ, the identity of Christ, not by what we've done, but what he's done, is by the Holy Spirit. The way we walk as Christians, as spirit-filled, spirit-led people, is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is kind of in the background saying, all I want to do for you in your life is point you to Jesus. The reason why we're generous people is because the Spirit has worked in our life. The reason why we even believe what the Father has called and what the Son has accomplished is because Titus 3 lets us know the Spirit opens up our life. The way that we live in the family is to be marked by the Spirit. You think, about the, you think about the neighborhood you grew up in. Whatever neighborhood or whatever apartment complex you grew up in, you knew certain families had things that marked them. You're like, oh, those are the, those are the Johnsons. Watch out, they will beat you up, right? And watch out for the Robertsons, right? They steal stuff, <laughs> right? And they're marked by, they mark by certain things. When it comes to the family of God, people should say, watch out for them. They're marked by the Spirit. That means they love like Jesus, they give like Jesus, they serve like Jesus, they sacrifice like Jesus, they forgive like Jesus. Watch out for them, they just might outlove you. Watch out for them, they're gracious people. They are jacked up, 
but they are a gracious people. Watch out for that family, right? Watch out for that family. And here's what I would say. The next week, we're going to talk about what does it look like to live and walk with the Spirit in this family, verses 2 through 8. And so if you're here today, God's not saying you have to be here tomorrow, but I am, right? (laughs) And hopefully he will convict you as well as we look at what does it mean and what does it look like to be Spirit-filled and to walk in the manner of the Spirit of God as a family. You can close your Bibles and we can pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for all eternity, Father, that you decided to enter in in spite of our sin. That before you created, Lord, it was your plan that you would work through the means of humanity to redeem a people who would sin against you. But Father, you would leave it up to us because if it was us, up to us, Lord, we couldn't accomplish it. But you, in your own goodness, Lord, sent your son Jesus to put on flesh, to live the lives that we couldn't have lived and die the death that we should have died on our behalf, and so we could be righteous, we could be approved of in Christ Jesus. And as we live now, Lord, until you come and fully consummate and restore this world, and our own brokenness and our own issues of sin and our own guilt, Lord, that you continue to take the Holy Spirit and apply it to our life, and so we can say that there's no condemnation for those of us by faith who rest in Jesus. And spiritually, we can agree in the words of Martin Luther King Jr. that we are free at last and free at last. We thank you, Father that we are free at last. It's in your precious and glorious name that we pray. Amen. I want to give you a moment to reflect on what would your life look like if you knew and trusted that you were fully, fully accepted of God. Like what type of things would you do? What type of things would you say? How would you work? And uh, spend, spend some time reflecting on that and asking God by the Holy Spirit um, to apply those things to your life that you may live that way in honor of Jesus. And in just a moment, Ryan will come and he will lead us in a time of response.